what I'm saying is just essentially you're not walking into what the trailers told you you were walking into. So just be a little okay. more That's true. cautious is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Good? Yes, sir. I know who I am. Did IQs just drop shot? I could have been. I, I have a plan. I like this All shit. Is. This is all it will. You know, it's Dance off, bro. It is your Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And today, we're going to be finishing off the second season of Atlantic Screen Connection with none other than Alien Covenant, the latest film by Ridley Scott. Sir Ridley. Sir Ridley Scott. Okay. <laughs> but before we get to that, I want to see how my co-host is doing. How you doing, Lee? I'm doing fine, man. Uh, the end of a season. Uh, I mean, much much shorter than the, the previous season, obviously. Uh, there we got, what, eight episodes instead of 20. But I mean, if you count all the next episodes, uh, that's like, what, 13? Okay. That's, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty solid chunk. Uh, yeah, so we got a... Um, yeah, it's, it's good. We did it. And kept on theme the entire time i'm so glad you brought that up the theme that we had throughout the entire season was a a theme that lee had come up with in terms of monsters the many many forms of monsters and so we started with split so then we had the beast we had the beast and after that we followed it up with john wick who's the baba yaga form of the book yeah the baba yaga that's right that's right uh logan of course being uh the the, uh, well i want he was supposed to be the the tortured man you know uh human being as monster or inner turmoil or something like that i've kind of forgotten Mm -hmm. most of it in its initial concept now but at the time that all made sense to me (laughs) yeah he's a science experiment gone wrong Uh, he has to face his own demons x24 is the extension you know so that's another form of the beast obviously uh godzilla and king kong speak for themselves yep under the skin uh, we had the form of alien so this the succubus if you will like uh, you were talking about lee during the episode uh, Fate of the Furious. Uh, Dominic Toretto is a monster, and so on. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a chainsaw <laughs> carrying gimp guy. There you go. <laughs> what a what a terror. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a terror at the box office, and we're capping it off with Alien Covenant. And skipping, of course, over Guardians of the Galaxy, which had monsters in it. I suppose. <laughs> oh yeah, a bunch of monsters. You're right. But anyway, so that's it. But before we get to that, so how are you doing? It's, it's almost wedding day. Woo! <laughs> oh that's right something's marrying you that's awesome yeah <laughs> and then, but even better we got a we got a solid break to recuperate from the show a little get all our our, our ourselves together and come back in the summer when we've got time to kill <laughs> that's gonna be great and again we're not alone we're bringing on um a returning guest so obviously you guys saw the videos on instagram twitter uh on facebook uh, as well so hey say hello to carrie lynn Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Welcome back. Yes. Thank you so it's much. Be really cool. How you doing, Carrie? I'm really good. Um, my my first year of my PhD is under my belt. I'm into the summer session now, so I can just kind of take a load off, uh, put my attention to other things. So it's nice. It's a nice break. Sounds great. Super cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be the same thing for me right now after I'm done recording this, uh, because I spent the last couple of days reading books and writing on 
Alien Covenant, I have to get back down to work because I still have papers to grade. However, you know, the end of the semester is, is going to be officially done soon. But that's it. Uh, then it's going to be slowly edging toward the real summer um, where I get to go out uh, and work out almost every day, uh, play basketball. Uh, it's going to be great fun. So All right. Good. So today is going to be a regular episode of Atlantic SC in that all three of us are going to be approaching Ridley Scott's Alien Covenant from very specific angles. Um, it's going to be a loaded fucking conversation. Uh, we're going to try to make it as entertaining as possible for you guys because, uh, well, we've seen the reactions online and it's pretty mixed. Definitely. <laughs> I can guarantee that most of film Twitter I've seen so far have not necessarily enjoyed the picture. But yeah, uh, I'm really looking forward to getting into this. There's uh, a lot of good ideas circulating around with regards to what Scott's actually doing with Prometheus and Alien Covenant and uh, taking over from Alien. So that's it. You guys ready to get into this? Let's do it, man. Yeah. All right, so stay tuned. We'll be back after this. Hi, everyone. This is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano da Silva. And this is Walter Vinci. And together we are the First Time Watchers Podcast. Each week we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen. Watch it together. And then discuss... These movies could be new, or old, or on our list of shame. You can find us on iTunes by searching for the First Time Watchers podcast. As well as on Stitcher! And we love interacting with our listeners, so if you have any suggestions, send us a tweet. An email. Or post to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. That's right, I mean, it's all about interaction. And talking about what we love, movies. And you don't have to worry about us going on and on about this and that and the other. And, oh, no, look, no, no, let's no. talk stop, about stop, this stop, minutiae shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. I wonder shut who up. the cat can God damn it, shut up. up. I think that's enough. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Hi, I'm David Hart, host of Pop Culture Case Study, a podcast that analyzes film from a psychological angle. On Thursdays, we take a look at an older movie, pick a theme, and then apply the research that has been in the psychological field to it. Then, on Monday, we tie all of that to a new release. Lastly, there's a section of the show called Fangirl Fixation, dedicated to my wife Britt's ongoing film education. We discuss older films that she's recently seen, as well as the upcoming releases for that week. You can find Pop Culture Case Study on your podcast player of choice, and I will be there, as always, diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. You've all sacrificed so much to be here and be a part of this thing we're doing. This crew is made up of couples. It's the first ever large-scale colonization mission. And everyone back on Earth is really grateful for your hard work and your courage. We're making history here. This is wheat. What are the odds of finding human vegetation this far from Earth? Who planted it? Hey, Sheila. You hear that? What? Nothing. No birds. No animals. Nothing. Here. 
Welcome back! I hope you guys enjoyed the trailer for Alien Covenant, a film directed by Ridley Scott and stars Michael Fassbender, Michael Fassbender again, Catherine Waterston, Danny McBride, Billy Crudup, Damien Bashir, and others. <laughs> yes, a lot of a lot of characters you can get attached to, that's for sure. Oh, definitely, I did. <laughs> All right, but before we actually get into what we thought of the film, um, we conducted a poll for Atlantic SC, which is really fun, and uh, I got a, a lot of feedback on it. We got 140 votes, which is so fucking cool, and and it's compared to the 10 or 15 votes that we usually got at the beginning of the season, so this is actually kind of cool to be like, oh, look at that, 140 yeah, people gave enough of a shit to vote in our poll, so that's kind of fun. Definitely. Um, and, and I only structured it as such. Did you enjoy Alien Covenant? And the four possible responses were, yes, I liked it. Sure, I was entertained. Some parts, but meh. No, I didn't like it. So the results of the poll came in and no, I didn't like it was 18%. Some parts, but meh, 21%. Sure, I was entertained at 26%. Hmm. And yes, I liked it, topped it all off with 35%. Which is quite surprising to yeah, me because I that too. The surprise at it. I mean, I mean, maybe it's just that the the focal minority is is the problem here. Because all I'm reading on Twitter is how everybody seems to dislike it. But the, uh, well, there's a there's we've we've ran a as close to scientific poll as possible, and it says yeah, people liked it more than they didn't, which is weird. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you look at it, sixty one percent of the people had a favorable experience. I can't imagine what kind of critical perspective you're coming from to to just sit in a theater and think, eh, it was crap. Give me a break. It's got something for everybody. But oh, I mean, I'll, <laughs> get, uh, I'll get back to that later. But I think I mean a lot of what I've been reading about essentially is well, I haven't. Well, you know what? That's a fucking lie. I didn't read shit because I didn't want to kind of have my perception of the film skewed in any way. Yeah. I didn't listen yeah, to any neither. of the podcasts or anything like that. So I'm just waiting for this to be recorded. So that way I can go in and listen to it and I can disagree with everyone. <laughs> but yeah. From what I could see from the tweets and all that, a lot of what had come out was people saying that um, uh, it was either too Prometheus or not enough alien or too alien and not enough Prometheus. It's like people were just kind of mixed. Like, what the fuck? I don't know what people are actually wanting from the film as opposed to taking it for what it was. I mean, which is essentially Prometheus too yeah you know and so i don't know i mean i i mean i guess a lot of critics i think went into it under the assumption that everybody had seen prometheus or even knew that this film followed up from prometheus which is i don't know it it seems weird that they wouldn't immediately take the standpoint uh, as as a default of just general moviegoer yeah. And see what they would see from the from the experience, and on top of that, then add in the impressions of somebody who actually keeps up with movies, rather than the other way around, have it colored 
entirely by your experiences with other films, and then sort of top off at the end. Also, maybe other people might like it, I mean, if they don't have any experience. It was great. I mean, Carrie was totally right. I can't argue, I can't see a reason why people would just outright not enjoy something about it. It is a general crowd-pleasing film. It, it had, it, it might be a little bit alien on Fast Forward, but it's definitely still a good, it's a perfectly solid alien film, and, it, and it's got a lot of little interesting bits and pieces, even in a conventional horror movie sense, that I thought were really fun to watch. And, and, and I mean, it's, maybe it's just because it's not my genre that uh, I'm easily impressed when horror films keep my attention, but I don't know, I thought it was engaging straight through the end, even if some of it I was kind of rolling my eyes. Most of it I was enjoying. Yeah, I don't know if horror movie is really the right genre, but um, it definitely falls into that action um, horror uh, within the greater sci-fi genre. Yeah. But yeah, I was thinking if you took the alien label off of it, if you changed the monster and the faces to those you didn't really recognize and just launched it as a generic um, sci-fi action film, I think people would love it. Yeah, people be falling over themselves point. about how great it was, and we hope there's sequels coming out. But because it's an alien slash Prometheus film, everybody's launched it onto a pedestal, and, and they have these ideas, I imagine, really specific ideas about what they're hoping it was going to be, mm-hmm. and feel like maybe they'll get more attention for nitpicking it apart. Um, I have to admit... I was expecting a lot less. Maybe that was part of the reason why my response was so positive. I, uh, Because I'd heard people say, don't watch the trailer. It gives the whole plot away, which is so not true. I watched it um, after the film and I was like, I'm glad I didn't see it. But uh, I also didn't gain anything from it. Like trying to think like, yeah, well, I mean, I could have watched that and watched the film and it wouldn't have made a difference. <laughs> no. So I watched the trailer and I thought, okay, I expected it to basically be like a bunch of people who don't know what they're getting themselves into stumble across a planet with aliens on it. Yeah. And they have crazy CGI battles and blasted out and only one or two survive. And basically the fun is just watching them figure out the xenomorph and and all the CGI battles. And I kind of expected that to be it. Um, And so, but I was prepared to enjoy it on the basis of the merits of just that, right? Mm -hmm. And then it ended up being so much more and it has intellectual levels as well that I really feel strongly are in there, which is what I'm going to be talking about later. So this is why I say it hits all the buttons. If you just want a fun action packed movie there it is if you want more than that there it is if you want some really interesting tie back to the whole universe of what's going on in prometheus and alien and some of like where it all came from it's got that for you too so what do you want people (laughs) (laughs) just calling everyone out a fun thing when i walk into a film i mean this is very different i'll talk about my experience in doing the podcast when we actually started Atlantic Screen Connection, hmm. remember the Suicide Squad episode? We spent the entire episode bitching at what people had said on Twitter. <laughs> and I mean, through my experience now and talking with a lot of people online, I've realized now that the best thing to do before I go into a movie is not talk to anyone because I feel like I walk in with a chip on my shoulder, forcing myself to like specific things as opposed to going in with just an open mind and trying to take in what the fuck the film is about. Hmm. Now, I'm a Ridley Scott fan. I like what he does. He's a very, very 
very competent filmmaker, and that's... I was going to say, competent is the key word there, yes. You know, he knows what the fuck he's doing. This guy is ready to attack whatever the fuck script he's got, and he whips it into whatever interesting uh, sci-fi or period piece or whatever the fuck war film, and he actually brings something of value to the table. Um, Alien Covenant, I was like, uh, I was a big fan of Prometheus. Uh, you know, regardless of its shortcomings and the, the stupidity of some things that actually might happen in there, um, I figure, you know, that there's a reason for those things to happen, you know, because that's just the way I am. And so walking into Covenant, I tried to avoid the trailers as well. And although when I did go see Logan, they played the fucking trailer. I was with my kids too. And so they got to see the, the trailer for Covenant. And I got woken up in the middle of the night. And it was like, Dad? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> a big... Oh, yeah. No, Allie. Really oh, didn't no. Like she got that. scared just from the trailer. Wow. Yeah. So that was. I mean, like, if, you, if you've never seen yeah. The Alien and you see that one little second of it at the end of that trailer. I mean, it's a terror. Yeah. It's still a terrifying monster. It's so funny you say that because when I was watching Alien Covenant just recently, I think on the second time around in particular, uh, especially when you get the black one towards the end, the old familiar guy, <laughs> I was just like, oh, it's so good to see you. Yeah, Come here, friends. give me a hug. Right? Like when I texted about like I, I went to bed thinking I'd really like a xenomorph plushie. I'm not kidding. My my response was like, oh, come here. Uh, yeah, it's just funny. I don't know. <laughs> This is what they, this is what they warned the us about getting overly familiar with <laughs> the xenomorph. He stops being scary. Apparently he goes beyond not being scary. Adorable. <laughs> so no wonder they've struggled to keep this, line, this fucking series running. Jesus Christ, you would gain affection for the guy. <laughs> yeah, I love him. Oh, I mean, it's Darth Vader syndrome, man. Right. That's Something true, you grow attached to. Yeah. I mean, Vader is a fucking space <laughs> He's Nazi a lovable screw-up these days. Like, oh, Vader, <laughs> you goofball. <There> you <laughs> But I mean, oh, to be awesome. fair, I think that there's a lot of the reaction that's come out of uh, a lot of the reaction that came out towards Alien Covenant is probably due to the marketing. Fox wanted to nip it in the bud. They wanted to make sure that there's a uh, an alien in this, and they put it front and center in the trailers. And you're like, yeah, but dudes, that's the last third of the film, and you kind of get it for what? Oh, by the way, spoiler alert. Uh, this is a spoiler-heavy discussion like we normally do. <laughs> Alien is in Alien Covenant. We have revealed it all. <laughs> I mean, he's in the trailer, but... But at the same time, it's there for what? How long is it there? 15 I think, minutes? I think if, tops? if you supercut all the, all the shots of the alien together in this film, it must be under two minutes. There you go. But those two minutes are in the fucking trailer. Maybe that's what they meant when, when, the, when Carrie was picking up on people saying, the trailer spoils it for you. It spoils the alien for you. The because fact you know that the alien there is there in oh the my film God. Alien Covenant. I mean, how delusional are you if you really think they're not going to... Maybe it's like, it's really how hurt they were from Prometheus. There was the underlying pretext that this was a, a, a prequel to Alien. And so people got it into their heads. It has to have the alien. And yeah. there was a lot of talk about that at the time. It's like, it doesn't even have alien in it. It's like, it's not fucking called Alien. And then this one's called Alien. And now they're like, I don't even know if there's going to be an alien in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I don't but, understand I mean, to be people. Fair. I'm so, it puts me out of touch. It makes me feel out of touch when I the alien fan base is one weird community. I just we do not see eye to eye. It's very strange. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um the alien in this case, what I think well, this is really cool. What Scott has done anyway, in my opinion, is uh, he shifted the focus towards David. Yeah, which yes. is essentially he, he's he's a thousand times more dangerous than the fucking alien can ever be, in my opinion. 
And he's the epitome of, of man's creativity, you know, the mirror image of all the ambition that humanity has is embodied in David. And what does he do? Hmm. He's the destructive force behind everything. <laughs> and you're like, what the fuck? That's even creepier yeah. than the alien can ever be because he looks like us. <laughs> that is fucked well, up, you know? And, and, and he so, gets his ideas from us as well. So There you go. You know, and so I love the fact that if the trailer, you know, they were like, fine, take the fucking alien. The movie isn't about the alien. The movie's about David. <laughs> it's about the covenant. And they kept David from us. Exactly. <laughs> and they kept David from us, which is fucking cool. I think that's masterful in the way Fox was like, oh, we're going to give people a misdirect. And you're like, well, you're not going to make any fucking money. But at the same yeah. time, Scott must have been like, ah, they missed the point. That's fine. I made my movie. That's true. That's uh, It was weird. The reveal in the film of David with the, the flares and all when I hadn't seen... And even, I mean, we see him at the, at the start, obviously, a cold opens with him. And then yeah. There is the moment of his conception or something like that. And uh, and it's a great scene. But, like, it was kind of a wake-up call. I didn't know how I was expecting the film to start, but I, I do think that when the screenplay jumps to the ship in space about five minutes after that scene starts, that was where I thought the film was going to start. And the fact that this was so obviously addressing it from the from the beginning, I am the sequel to Prometheus... I, I, it took me by surprise because I, I just, I don't know. I got into my head. Oh, they've left that for dead. Anyway, let's move on to Alien. And I was really, I was pleasantly surprised because I didn't hate Prometheus. I liked the ideas. Cool. I just wished it was in the hands of some better writers that have made a more coherent oh, film. Oh, yes. You and your constant disdain for Damon Lindelof. I do not like Damon Lindelof as a, as a writer. I, I love his ideas. He is an idea man that an enviable on all levels. But when it comes to crafting coherent stories uh with those ideas i've uh, consistently has lost me uh and, and mostly because he his conventions for keeping audiences interested are just misdirection into nowhere uh right. what's great about prometheus is that if you blur the lines you can pick cherry pick what you want from the film and covenant the writers of this have done a solid job taking all the good parts and working them into an alien film. And, and and it's very commendable as well. I said in my review that uh, Scott must have got the damage control team from Days of Future Past because they did some fucking miracle work. Uh, and and, and it, <laughs> it, it was great. I, I genu it, it felt like it was closer to the vision, closer to a coherent vision that Scott might have had for Prometheus at the time. Absolutely. Uh, I think yeah. that Covenant takes the right steps with the right material. And I, I appreciate that Lindelof was there because his ideas are good, but... That's that's there's a there's a there's a significant there's a clear line in my head which which film was the better, and and there's a significant missing factor in that. I think that kind of you know cements it to me. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I agree with you, Lee. I understand that there were shortcomings with Prometheus, but I mean, if you look at how Scott was able to shape the narrative into something that you, I mean, to to me was was coherent. I understand where he was going with it, mm. and. Leading into Alien Covenant, I mean, I went with Carrie twice to see this movie. Two nights in a row. Two nights in a row. Great. And, I mean, when we walked out of the first viewing, we were both on a high. I kind of left quickly because I had to come home, but at the same time, it's because my brain was burning with so many fucking ideas. And, I mean, Carrie was exploding at the brim as well. She was like, oh my god, there's so much shit in the here. The beauty of it is that you caught it on tape, so we can all see it. <laughs> <There you> go. <laughs> and... Then after that, on the second night, Karen and I were talking almost throughout the entire film. Like, did you pick up on this? And did you pick up on that? But it was really, really cool because we 
were able to discuss quite a bit. And I mean, the more I think about Alien Covenant, the more I believe uh, this is a masterpiece of filmmaking. Now, before everyone goes apeshit, I understand Prometheus and Covenant, they're both flawed films in their oh, own yeah. right, but that doesn't make them shit, okay? These films look good. They're rife with meaning and symbolism. And for the audience that feels like it, there's an abundance of material that is chiding you to delve deeper into analysis. Mm -hmm. I obviously fit into that category. And the reason I do is because Ridley Scott has made more than his fair share of philosophical films. Uh, He's asked so many questions about the meaning of life, how humanity strives to find its purpose, and whether it's through uh, religion and philosophy uh, science, uh, history, you know, look, look at his, look at, uh, films like gladiator and kingdom of heaven. Uh, Scott has navigated these systems and tried to make sense of all of them. This is a guy that's been doing this for years now. So I think we should give him the benefit of the doubt and try to look at these films for what they're actually talking about. And so I felt that with covenant, this was Scott at his most personal. Um, I hadn't witnessed a film like this in a while from him. And uh, I liked the questions he was asking uh, in Prometheus. But with Covenant, I understood a little bit more about why Scott was asking them. Or better yet, uh, why Scott was drawn into making the films in the first place. All right? yeah, uh, why right. he felt like uh, he needed to uh, go back to the alien pool. I mean, yeah, that's that's the burning question for the entire reboot of, or the prequel series of Alien. Why? And it, it does, I think, when you're coming in as film by film, you know, when we're there, when it's happening, rather than seeing the completed project a couple of years later, we're always going to be asking, okay, but what's the final picture? But I think with Covenant, we, as you're probably going to get into, we're seeing a little bit of that jigsaw puzzle come together and um, we're seeing some significant things that he is trying to get to. Uh, and it, it is very much becoming something worthwhile to invest time and effort into. And I think very easily we could be talking about this years from now. Still appreciative of what constantly sh- is shifting behind the scenes of the of his work in this universe. Absolutely. And before we get into that, what you're talking about, this idea of shifting, I want to contextualize Alien, the 1979 film sure. uh, first. Because whenever I look up comments on Alien, and I remember I saw like Mark Kermode uh, was talking about Alien at, at one point, and it's it's funny because the first thing that comes uh, from all the comments that I've seen is that uh, Alien is a, a film about space truckers that encounter an alien life form, and what we witness is essentially their fight for survival. Yeah. Fine. Sure. Okay, that's the basic premise, if if you want to see it that way. But, I mean, if you read the abundance of literature on the film, you start piecing together themes that are related to uh, nihilism, to religion, uh, social class structures, difficulty for equal wages uh, for non-unionized workers, uh, gender equality, uh, fear of the other. Uh, there's fear of computer technology. Uh, there's the uh, taboos surrounding sex, uh, sexual orientation and desire, and, and many of the subversions, anyway, that are in the film. Now, all of that was going on in society at the time Scott made the film. Now, no matter if Scott consciously or unconsciously added those aspects to the film, yeah. people have been able to extract that information. So, sure, you can see it as a monster movie in space involving truckers, 
But where's the fun in that? <laughs> well, but that's because we're people that enjoy taking a literary analysis kind of perspective on things, right? So I would agree with anybody that, you know, you can enjoy Frankenstein, Alien, you name it. You can just enjoy it on the level of the exciting tale that it is. But um, but for really well-told stories, you have that that subtext of much more intellectual things going on, right? And Ridley Scott is that good. And so those exactly. subtexts are that. here. Yeah, definitely. And that kind of leads me, uh, as I was piecing this together, there's obviously a clear difference in what's being discussed in the first Alien film and what's being discussed in Prometheus and Alien Covenant. And so I took the time to think about it. And to me, I've come to realize that the first Alien film is an exercise in extroversion. So basically, Scott commenting on the society in which he's living, whereas Prometheus and Alien Covenant are exercises in introversion, hmm. essentially what Scott is dealing with personally. And how I came to that conclusion is that there are 38 years that separate the films. Right. I mean, Scott's turning 80 this year. So with right. all that, yeah. Well, May he live forever. In a way, he, <laughs> yeah. he might through the films, and we'll get into that in a little bit. It'll be cool. And I think that with all the questions relating, again, to philosophy, religion, science, creation, heaven, hell, uh, meeting the maker, if there is one, life, death, uh, all this has had me thinking that Prometheus, um, Alien Covenant, and whatever Scott has in store for his next installments, uh, these films are all very personal films. Uh, that find Scott contemplating his own mortality uh, and whether or not mm. any of the mythologies yeah. we choose to believe have any validity. And the fucked up thing is that it got me thinking so much that I went out and bought two books in order to prepare for the episode. Sweet God. <laughs> I, ju I, ju I just read books I already own. I didn't buy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, no, I was, I was a Kindle score. Like, oh, my God, if Scott's contemplating his own death, what does that mean? To look up. <laughs> it's time to panic. I've been it's reading about death read. for the past two days. It's really interesting because, I mean, well, I'm like, oh, well, at least I'll be prepared for my own eventually. I haven't read yeah. through them completely. <laughs> I managed to get through roughly half of each book. And I think that if you want to gain a little bit more insight as to what is going on in uh, Prometheus and Covenant, you might want to read these books. So I started reading Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death and Solomon Greenberg and Pazinski's The Worm at the Core on the role of death in life. Now, Becker's book details why people refuse to accept their own mortality, uh, going into uh, the reasoning that people stay alive solely because of their fear of death and how people seek immortality in a variety of ways, including religion and procreation etc a bunch of stuff and i went on to read a little bit more of an article by jonathan young of coventry university uh that was published in the conversation entitled uh why contemplating death changes the way you think and hmm. which he basically summarizes the other book i mentioned entitled uh the worm at the core on the role of death and life young discusses how in recent years there has been a push toward making conversation about less uh, about death less taboo. They opened up in um, in uh, Switzerland, which I picked up in uh, the article, uh, death cafes where people can actually go and talk about their mortality uh, with people that are um, that are kind of going through uh, that similar thing. Uh, these aren't necessarily old people. They could be uh, young people talking to old people. And uh, it, it's kind of interesting because it's not something we normally talk about. I mean, even George Carlin was mentioning this. We, uh, there, uh, there's a fear of death in our society. And so among other points Jung raises is what happens to people when they're confronted with their own mortality 
And um, I'm going to read a long quote from the article, and then we'll get into what this means for Alien Covenant. Right. Um, and so uh, the quote reads, Being reminded of death strengthens our ties to the groups we belong to, to the detriment of those who are different from us. Reminders of death also affect our political and religious beliefs in interesting ways. On the one hand, they polarize us. Political liberals become more liberal, while conservatives become more conservative. Uh, similarly, religious people tend to assert their beliefs more fervently, while non-religious people disavow more. Uh, according to many theorists, reminders of death compel us to seek immortality. Many religions offer literal immortality, but our secular affiliations, such as um, our nation states and ethnic groups, can provide symbolic immortality. Uh, these groups and their traditions are part of who we are, and they outlive us. So defending our cultural norms can boost our sense of belonging. Consistent with this interpretation, researchers have also found that reminders of death increase our desire for fame and for children, both of which are commonly associated with symbolic immortality. Hmm. Uh, it turns out that we do want to be immortalized through our work and our DNA. Now, what all this means is that you can find all this at play in both Prometheus and Covenant. Scott, in my opinion, has fractured himself into Wayland and David. Wayland is mortal and is aware of it. And in Prometheus, he says he wants to meet the engineers in order to extend his life. So find immortality. We find this same train of thought at the beginning of Covenant when Wayland is talking to David and explaining that he's created the perfect son in David, the only version of immortality he can have. So in all this self-reflection, Scott, in my opinion anyway, has repurposed the xenomorph as the embodiment of death itself. It's Scott's anxiety towards death materialized, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's. I could say that's my embodiment of death. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're also, um, uh, you're pointing to what I think are some of the most important themes in Covenant. And Prometheus hints at them. But you don't realize how central they are until Covenant. So I think you're you've got it right on. Until until a good screenwriter gets their hands on them. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, Lindelof, but I don't hate you that much. I'm only kidding. <laughs> uh, we'll give him a follow on Twitter. See if he follows back. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I picked up in my readings, I um I I noticed that Ernest Becker was explaining that another psychologist, Kierkegaard, believed that. Quote, anxiety lures us on, becomes the spur to much friction in our lives. We enter symbiotic relationships in order to get the security we need, in order to get the relief from our anxieties, our aloneness, and helplessness. But these relationships also bind us. They enslave us even further because they support the lie that we've fashioned. <laughs> so we strain against them in order to be more free. Now, Becker calls this the transference of terror or the taming of terror. <laughs> he uses both. And the symbiotic relationship Scott has with death at this point can be expressed in this quote. Realistically, the universe contains overwhelming power. Beyond ourselves, we sense chaos. We can't do much about this unbelievable power except for one thing. We can endow certain persons with it. A person takes a natural awe and terror and focuses them on individual beings, which allow them to find the power and the horror in one place instead of diffused throughout a chaotic universe. By this means, the person can control their fate. As ultimately power means power over life and death, the person can now safely emerge in relation to the transference object. The object becomes their locus of safe operation. 
Scott, in this case, is literally confronting death the same way his characters are, and in doing so, he's freeing himself of the burden of thinking about it. Uh, Prometheus and Covenant must be therapeutic as fuck because there is a fuck ton (laughs) of death in both films. And so, which leads me into the last little point I want to make. I think that Covenant also finds Scott contemplating faith in a very nihilistic manner, once again, in the form of Chris Oram, the Billy Crudup character, and to an extent also uh, Elizabeth Shaw. If we look at Chris, uh, he's a man of faith, and how fitting is it that he is the first xenomorph, the perversion of the Christian resurrection? Uh, It feels as though Scott was questioning Shaw's um, because it's what I choose to believe from Prometheus by having a hell spawn born of science burst out of a man of faith. And it happens too, mere minutes after um, uh, one of the characters uh, says to him, we need your faith right now. Yeah, exactly. That's Waterston's character, Daniels. Mm. Yes. And then he turns around and he goes to look for the missing crew member. And this religious idea is batted back and forth. It's a big deal through uh, Prometheus as well as uh, Alien Covenant, uh, mostly Prometheus, about uh, the value of the of faith and this religious perspective. And so, uh, yeah, Daniel says to him, we need your faith right now because they're freaked out on the planet. Right. And so he's like, thanks, you know, and he feels good about that. And he turns around and he goes and dies. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in fact, Jason turned the other Jason uh, turned to me and he goes, "This movie's pretty agnostic." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, my experience <laughs> with most science fiction, if you because I often take uh, an a, an approach that examines like the treatment or underlying attitude towards religion, is science fiction usually tends to be agnostic, if not outright critical yeah. of religion. But mm-hmm. I mean, this one treats it with fairly light touch. But yeah, it's definitely it's there There that's hilarious (laughs) (laughs) that's it to me i mean i could go further i had so many quotes i had to trim it down to uh, to what i essentially brought to the table you know and if you decide to pay attention to what's actually going on in prometheus and the alien covenant i mean to me they're very very personal films and i'll tell you exactly how i got to this and it uh, first started with um jed kurzel's score for uh, covenant the opening track, when you listen to it carefully, you hear a faint bell tolling. Mm, <laughs> really? I That's like great. that. <laughs> In the theater, my brain immediately went to John Dunn's For uh-huh. Me the Bell Tolls. Mm. And then we like see it with just like David's eye and we hear Waylon's voice coming uh, over that bell tolling. And I was like, are these guys, what, what are we talking about? Is this death knocking? If I can jump in too on another, it's on the same theme though, like the the subtle reinforcing of perspectives on death. The um, Ozymandias poem by by Shelley, right. who uh, David gets wrong, he thinks it's uh, Byron. But in any case, um, more importantly, he gets the author wrong, but he seems to totally misunderstand the point of the poem. And uh, yeah. <laughs> which, which I think is really critical, right? Because because Ozymandias, the poem, just to give people a real quick uh, recap, is um, is a person comes across a, a broken up bust of a huge statue lying in a desert wasteland. There's nothing around it, but on the bust of the statue, which clearly used to be one of these ancient kings, and this statue used to be massive 
And the engraving on the bottom of the statue says, look upon my works, whatever, and and despair. And so in the context of when that statue had been created, it was made by a massive king. Ramses II. Oh, okay, Ramses, great. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a just recent archaeological find this year found another massive statue of him, by the way. In <laughs> really? a big mud puddle. Yeah, very cool. In Egypt. What what good timing. Yeah. So anyways, <laughs> so so the idea is that Shelley is reflecting on uh at Ramsey's height, he felt he was king, ruler, universe of the whole world, of the universe, right? There was nothing bigger than him. He mm-hmm. created all of these massive um memorials to himself. He thought he was it. And the person that stumbles across the um, broken down remnant of the statue in surrounded by nothing surrounded by empty desert so the point is that Ramsey didn't get it right Ramsey thought he was it and he didn't realize that like any other man he's gonna <laughs> he ate all that he's gonna die <laughs> and fade and all everything he did is gonna fade with him and uh, so David totally misses that because he's looking down upon his works and he's saying oh it's magnificent you know I am Ozymandias basically and it's like dude you don't get it. Ozymandias ends up a nobody in the sand. Like, so, and he clearly isn't getting that because when he's referring to that poem, he just sees himself as the big, the big king. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's it. I'm going to finish off uh, there. I, uh, I know, you know, with uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, I thought that how both facets of Scott were being metaphorically put one against the other in the opening sequence, you know, uh, Waylon witnessing the birth of his immortal self, the man Scott is in real life versus the immortal filmmaker, creator, and destroyer of worlds right. he'll be remembered as. Look at the tapestry Scott is creating, you know? Right. Just this, just taking the gates of hell from Rodin as marketing. I mean, mm. he had to approve that at one point. This talking, this guy's talking about Paradise Lost in the film, Ozamandias. <laughs> There's so much going on. He mentions the Christian veil of tears, you know, leaving troubles behind when you're heading to heaven. We are like, what the fuck, dude? This is a lot of literature that points to this desolate wasteland. And if these are the thoughts that are going through your head as you're contemplating your own mortality, I think it's really a a good thing for him to get it out on screen and let us kind of take the brunt of it by saying, you know what? Yeah, he's he's, he's certainly transferring that terror. (laughs) Exactly. But at the same time, he's ridding himself of it. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was really cool. He's creating a really good dialogue with the audience. I mean, these are the things that you think about when the lights go off at night. (laughs) And so anyway, that was my shtick, you know. I'm eager to see where Scott goes with this because uh, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm I'm loving what he's putting on screen for me right now. I want to go back for a third watch of Alien Covenant. And I mean, I understand that I didn't talk about <laughs> Alien Covenant itself. You know, people will be like, well, you didn't really talk about the film. I did. I did yeah. in my way. And I'm looking forward to seeing where Scott goes with this because I think it's, I think it's very touching. Call me weird for saying that. But it's it's very touching um, to see what Scott has done with both yeah, it's, it's, uh, Prometheus and Alien. It's the imparting of, of of wisdom, isn't it? You know. It's, there you go. That's a better very, way of saying it. It's a very, it. very father. Cool. It's a very fatherly thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, or grandfatherly, I think is probably the best way to put it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I, that total despair is something that I'll I'll, I'll love to get into because it also ties into the Ozymandias stuff that Carrie's talking about, but. Carrie's got cool things to talk about that <laughs> probably tie in a lot to 
the uh, the chaos that you brought up and the <laughs> the idea that uh, Scott is trying to counteract chaos, which seems like the antithesis to what Carrie was going to say. <laughs> well, actually, I think uh, what I saw in the movie, um, I, I see the same themes that Jason does, totally. Um, it, I, it just happened that for me, I happened to be reminded of um, something called chaos theory and metachaotics as they're applied to literature. And I just, um, I just thought that Ridley Scott was was using these kind of literary devices, especially in the movies. I, I want to talk about Alien Prometheus and Alien Covenant. I think you can probably fit the other three um, or the other, yeah, the other three Alien movies yeah, three. into my <laughs> only three <laughs> into my uh, thesis here. But but basically, if you look at Alien Prometheus and Alien Covenant as a trilogy. Um, it really works with um, with this chaos theory. I'm going to be referring to a book by Gordon Slethog, Beautiful Chaos, Chaos Theory and Metachaotics in Recent American Fiction from t- the year 2000. Uh, hit me up on Twitter if you want to read more about it because it's quite dense stuff. I'm just going to skip through as quickly and lightly as I can. I think it's pretty accessible stuff, though. So it's, so it's chaos theory from... Um, from physics as a metaphor for literary devices. So you start, the chaos theory model draws on a dynamical system, um, which is one that might be radically altered through a minimal change in one key variable and then tracking how that plays out. And so um, ecological systems are one of these um, things that works as a dynamical system. So in the case of the movies, um, our, our universe here where all the species are under threat by the pathological organism that is the rapidly spreading, highly adaptable xenomorph. That's the key variable. If, if that gets exposed mm-hmm. to your ecology, um, then you can rapidly see these cascading effects in your system, uh, whether that be right. your spaceship, whether that be your planet, whether that be whatever, right? You don't want to get exposed to that. The, the, um, cascade begins. So, so sure. that's the dynamical system. Well, that's it. Scott does a good job at showing how that works when uh, they get to C-234 with the spores and how they manifest, you know, go into the air, you know. We can actually tie that together after after that and what had happened beforehand just by what happens to them. We're like, oh, shit, that means this destroyed all of life out of just this one little yeah, thing. And yeah, and there's the sense with the entire series, too, that once humanity is exposed to even the idea of knowing that the alien is out there, you know, the company is, you know, charging forward to try to capture it. Once you're exposed, you cannot right. safely be rid of it kind of idea. So, yeah, it's throughout. So within the dynamical system, another couple of key themes from chaos theory is uh, recursions, which is basically just a straightforward replication. Right. Um, there's fractals which occur when replications show an infinite nesting of pattern within pattern and repetition across scales. Yeah, fractals are cool. I I don't know if you can, um, if you just Google image search like fractals, you'll see what I mean. It's almost like a snail going in on itself and the pattern just continues to get smaller but repeat at a smaller and smaller size. Right, yes, cool. And then there's iterations 
which is repetition of your major or your um, basic pattern, but with minor changes, whether that be from a change in scale or a change in a variable. And so Slethog says that when iterations are used as a literary device, it, quote, suggests the pattern of similarity across scale and develops and assesses their thematic importance. So he says, like, this doesn't happen by accident. People use this way of um, repeating things as a way of um, of exploring or drawing attention to specific themes. Uh, so in practice for literature or storytelling, um, these patterns may be plot beats that are repeated, parallel subplots, parallel complementary themes or motifs, etc. And so I think Mm. most people will really see where I'm going with that with um, with these three alien movies. Um, The way I see it, uh, the pattern that is common across all of them is the setting up and then problematization of familiar binaries. And then as the movies go along, it gets increasingly complicated and gets turned back in on itself. So basically, um, for the first movie, Alien, it stays pretty basic. The binaries are the genders, male and female, and they're kind of subverted in the fact that you've got a brave female hero slash survivor. She keeps her cool. You also have a male birth. Mm. For Prometheus, it starts to get a little bit more complicated, but it's still pretty basic stuff. It's between religion and science and nature versus technology. You can almost argue those aren't even two different things. But um, so religion is represented in the character of of Dr. Elizabeth Shaw in particular in Prometheus, um, because she makes that comment about I choose to believe, you know, and she's she's characterized Mm -hmm. as being somebody who is uh, what do they call her fanatic. Um, so she sees the cave paintings. She's got faith that it's almost like a, a godlike creator species that is sending a message to them. She chooses to believe that. There's one character that comments, you're willing to discount three centuries of Darwinism. And she says, yes, because it's what I choose to believe. So, so that's the familiar, you know, the evolution versus religion kind of, um, pairing and even towards the end when things go really bad after the disaster she tells david after all this i still believe and it, and it cuts just before his maniacal laugh <laughs> <laughs> so as much as she represents uh religion um it's this dichotomy is problematized because um for one thing dr shaw herself is a scientist So she doesn't really represent total religion. Um, And although she has a religious-like faith that she's found a map left by her creators, the creators are aliens utilizing technology to create, which is why it's emphasized, especially by the fact that they're called engineers. So even though these are religious tropes, it's still totally removed from religion and it actually still resides with science. So I think that's how Scott is kind of setting up the binary. He's, he's using all of these comments by the characters to, to draw our attention to these ideas, but, but it's still not really, you know, it's problematized. It's not really leaving the realm of science. The other binary that I think is present uh, in all of them, but Prometheus kind of draws out is the binary between uh, nature and technology. This is especially evident in the siblings because Miss Vickers and David are set up as siblings. 
but David is the preferred, the privileged sibling, even though he's the android and Miss Vickers is the human. But they take on the characteristics of the opposite binary to them. So this is problematized again, right? Like you have, and, and this binary is problematized in biotech anyways, because just like with the religion, you've got this supposed separation between nature and technology, but they're not actually separated. Even on the nature side of, of the binary, it's it's all tech. So by what, what I mean by that is like, Vickers is acts like a robot. There's the joke that the captain even, you know, he brings it up. Are you a robot? And to be honest, the first time I was watching the movie, I that was a question in my mind too. So the captain, yeah. the captain mm-hmm. voices the question. I think that we've all been led to ask. Um, and so, so neither of them are are really, even though she's literally human, neither of them uh, represent humanity fully or nature fully in that way. Uh, so, so that's what I see going on with the binaries in. Uh, in Prometheus, there's a callback to the gender uh, binary because you still have some of that reversed gender stereotype things going on. For instance, the scientists in the lab coats doing the autopsy on the head are two women. Um, the other woman in the room is Miss Vickers. She's a dominating uh, character. She's the leader of the expedition, uh, whereas the only male in the room is David, and he's very subservient. So, so Scott's still doing this with gender, right? Um, so there's also um, a call forward to one of the most important binaries that's that's following in the next film, and that is uh, the relationship between creator and created. And that's in the conversation mm-hmm. that uh, David has with Charlie, which is Dr. Shaw's husband there. He's drinking because he's disappointed, I guess, that that he's not going to be able to meet his maker and ask them the questions. And so David is having this conversation with him just before he poisons him about the nature of that creator-created relationship, which is the most important thing on David's mind, right? This is how uh, Alien Covenant, the opening scene, goes straight to that theme, which I'll get to in just a second. But but David has uh, the same conversation with Charlie that he had with his father um, because Charlie tells him, that what he would have wanted to ask was why did you make me right and um and david suggests to him well why did you make me why did your kind make my kind suggesting that maybe you could find the answer for that for your question in your own reasoning for why you made androids and charlie's really flippant and he's like yeah we just made you because we could right like <laughs> fuck you guys, we don't care about you, right? And you can see on David's face how visibly disappointed he is. And so this is super important for Covenant. You could miss it in Prometheus, right? Or it it just Mm -hmm. seems like a minor theme going on. But um, that opening scene that uh, that Jason talked about where it's David's birth, basically. He comes online, and there's his dad. And the very first question that David asks his father after after uh, Waylon tells him I'm your father, he says, well, who created you, father? And I think from there, Waylon goes on to, to, to hint at his, his hopes for the future to find out. Yeah. But, but it sets up this sort of funhouse mirror fractal pattern of continual layers, receding layers of creator to created relationship. Like we think in terms of just two-dimensionally, there's us, and then there's the people that believe in God and or evolution. And that's kind of it, right? But these mm. movies set up this pattern where where you get successional 
creators uh, that continue to displace their created and, and it just goes down the line. So so that's to get into the binaries that I see happening in Alien Covenant um, is the, t- the one there between creator and created and the other bet- uh, between two competing conceptions of death. One being a more Christian religious uh, view of death where it's final, you, you only die once and you have this endless life in heaven, um, which Bakhtin from grotesque realism and some other theorists have called uh, a very sterile and uh, <laughs> final kind of version of death. Uh, so that would be the one side and the other side being like a pre-Christian pagan notion of death as renewal. So like, I don't, if you know anything about tarot cards, the death card, for instance, does not mean anybody's going to die. It, it refers to the cyclical pattern of renewal. Right. Cool. Yeah. So what David does with the uh, aliens, uh, David wouldn't see it like I killed an entire population of, of a planet. Uh, David would see it like I created space for the birth of my new life form. Right. So this real emphasis on the, the re- rebirth and uh, death in service of rebirth. So so, yeah, so those those are kind of the major things that I see going on in the movie. And um, and so those two binaries, I think, help to explain what the hell is going on with David. Right. But yeah, for me, I found that the most pressing and the most interesting question of Alien Covenant was what the hell happened to David? We get reacquainted with him on this planet. He's been by himself for 10 years. And spoiler alert, we learn that um, he's become this monster who is willing to (laughs) heartlessly, ruthlessly wipe out the entire population animal and otherwise of a planet and not only that but he was all he's also willing to just murder everybody that shows up and so so what happened in those 10 years did all work and no play make david go cray cray this is <laughs> this is the question that was on my mind when i was thinking about the movie act afterwards so so the intoxicating liquor of creating life is hinted at in the original quadrilogy. It's in the Wayland yutani Corporation's lust for getting its hand on the xenomorph, um, mm-hmm. personified in the character Burke, Paul Reiser's character in Aliens, like it already is hinted at this this lust for um, for creating life. They want to get their hands on it, but but you imagine at the time that it's mostly as the the xenomorph as a weapons commodity. And so, so the theme of the psychological implications isn't really, it gets introduced in Prometheus, but it's fully developed in Alien Covenant. So I want to go back to the scene in Prometheus with David and Charlie. Um, David declines having a drink himself. And Charlie jokes it's because he's not a real boy, which is a derogatory reference to Pinocchio, right? Geppetto's creation that has an inferiority complex. And so David turns... <laughs> you know, I've never thought of it that way. Pinocchio has an inferiority. For, you know, it, you, you don't really sit down to, to think about the stuff that you grew up with. Right. Uh, but yeah, Pinocchio, the, the, the living inferiority complex. It's taken it's taken a long road to get to this point where now I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm totally crushing the, the works of my childhood. But uh, yeah, well, thanks, Carrie. <laughs> well, this is a theme in sci- this is a theme in science fiction that kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Is is always this underlying assumption that humanity is the pinnacle. 
And because in Star <laughs> Trek 2, anytime we run into like alien life forms, they're always like, you humans, you're really fill in the blank. But there, it's always like sure. an adoration that, oh my gosh, you humans are just so creative. You're so this, you're so resilient. We're always patting ourselves on the back that that we're the pinnacle and those who are not human are just dying to be human. And so, and which is certainly the case with Pinocchio, right? And it's also Charlie's assumption that, uh, that David is suffering from this same kind of inferiority. Mm. And, but David doesn't fall for it. He turns the metaphor back on Charlie by replying. And the, it's the next thing he says, he says, I'm very sorry your engineers are gone. And so he points out that Charlie's heavy, heavy drinking at that moment is due to him being upset that he's failed to meet his maker. And so David is dr pointing out the parallel between their psychological responses to their respective creators. And he's essentially asserting, you're no better than me, man. Like you're, you're a Pinocchio as well, right? And right, so, right. But, but Charlie doesn't get it. Um, <laughs> of course, because Charlie's a dick. Because Charlie's <laughs> dumb. Yeah, which is why Charlie is going to die. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like I say, um, you know, David, David gives him that question, why do you think your people made me? And Charlie, Charlie still isn't getting it. The, the parallels there. He just he's like, ah, because we could. And David is visibly put off. And he says to him, can you imagine how disappointing it would be for you to hear the same thing from your creator? And Charlie, again, doesn't get it. He just laughs and he says, good thing for you. You can't be disappointed, implying because he's an inferior non-human robot. He can't feel that way, right? Which is also just factually incorrect. Yeah. Um, and so Charlie is not only drunk and disinclined to be philosophical, but he's also dumb enough to totally miss David's subtext and his clear emotional responses to the conversation. And Ridley Scott is fond of punishing this stupid. And <laughs> Charlie is the first casualty. So... <laughs> I love Ridley Scott is fond of punishing the stupid. <laughs> Lord love him. Yeah. And that's funny because, you know, you'd think the, the alien fan base would get the hint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's their biggest complaint. Uh, well, to be fair, maybe it's because they're fond of punishing him. So for as there much disdain as, Char as David has for Charlie, I think he takes Charlie's thoughtlessly candid reply as true and universally representative of the urge to create life. And I think this is the kernel of what happens to, uh, to David. Um, it's a ruthless position that's immoral to the extent that it takes no account of the emotional cost to the created. So it's as though Charlie's statement backed up by the consistently disdainful and disrespectful treatment David and pretty much all the synths and the androids and all the series, he feels like that gives him license to adopt exactly the same amoral ambitions as his creators when he goes on his own mad scientist rampage. So I really feel like he just learns from the example that he's given. And it's when you look at it that way, it's kind of hard to find fault like he is establishing himself mm. on that ladder as creator um through force which is how humans operate and he is just reenacting that with that same kind of amoral disdain for that which came before and uh and so it's a really harsh indictment of humanity basically yeah yeah that, 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 that essentially ties into your your fractal idea that we're just a uh, That's continuing right. spiral of degrading 
but well, self-repeating acts yeah. in that each thing we create learns. And, you know, you can compare that to just even general, you know, parenthood. You embody, you, you take from your, your creator and you try to imply on onto your children but you end up you know what you cover you also end up missing in 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 some regard and so you end up in some ways that you can't expect still fucking up your kids <laughs> you know it's so universal in that you know it goes to creator created uh, that it can work on that sort of you know very applicable level where we see it in our own you know in, in what we know is definitely here on this planet not just in fiction not in our idealisms but then as we see what would happen in 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 these cases where people actually embody a whole species can create a whole different scale of intellectual life right it, it happens again you know we, we we find ourselves constantly punishing what we've made for being not like us and too like us at the exact same time <laughs> and in these movies it's happening on a lot of different levels as well right so it starts with the engineers uh, our understanding is that they created us likely because we have the same dna or very similar and we believe that they created the xenomorphs as well but mm. they are not caring they're not protective we we don't even feel they're necessarily very wise so there's no idealized creator there um uh you know when um in the deleted scene that has been put back into the the version of the movie that you can get now for prometheus um mm. wayland has an opportunity to talk to the um the engineer yes that's, i've it, seen this recently right. yeah yeah and so so he's like oh you know i want the answers we came all this way to talk to you and i don't think we really get the final translation of the engineer's final words but he's just he just grabs david and breaks him in two and you know kills everybody basically so there's there's no creator relationship there um, well, yeah. I had a question. I had a question with regards to that. Then, I mean, if if Shaw wants to know why uh, the engineers wanted to destroy Earth, could it be because that they have some sort of foresight into understanding that we are going to create David, which is going I to don't lead know. to For their? Me, I think that's, that's, that's reading too much into it to think that they would okay. foresee the creation of androids. But actually, uh, Jay but I mean. What I think he means is that, you know, from their experience working with the the weapon and even you know, their their ideas oh, okay. to punish life, they see that the humanity, if they had the chance, they'll repeat the same cycle. Therefore, the action of the engineer taking out David first is, is, is symbolic of the fact that they know they've already fucked up and... <laughs> The whole point, exactly. the whole purpose was to sort of retcon the entire idea of them creating. Well, I was... <laughs> exactly. Uh... That's what I thought. It went with uh, fractals, this uh, idea of repetition. They're basically trying to break yeah. the loop. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I was chatting with Jason, uh, the other Jason again, on um, on Facebook yesterday because we're both still thinking about the movie. And we came up with the theory that maybe um, because we knew that the engineers were trying to reach earth originally they were trying to get there and so yeah. Yeah. uh because the the xenomorph species need organic life from which to grow out of we were wondering if mm -hmm. they were headed to earth just for more fodder to create more of their xenomorphs basically i wasn't under the impression that the engineers actually created the xenomorphs I was under the impression that they created something that could manifest in everything i mean if you look at how in prometheus the um those little worm-like things the shot that yeah the shot that scott puts uh, you see like a centipede or a worm and then it 
that worm crawls into the goop and it becomes that that snake-like thing. So I think mm. they've created something that creates life, but they could actually see if, it, see if it turns into something that's evil in the end. They noticed their mistake, but I don't think they created the xenomorph, but rather like the potential for creating life out of sacrifice or destruction, if you will. Uh, that's the opening of Prometheus, in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's what David goes into in Covenant is, you know, they've created this this weapon and the weapon is just this incredibly volatile genetic structure that exposed yeah. to things continually creates and reshapes what it has. Uh, and always, button. yeah, and, it, it, but it, and it's mostly a destructive factor, but it's also an, it, immediately life giving. So that's, that's very strange. Uh, that um, I, I'm not sure. Is, uh, they, yes, I don't. F- I think the film quite clearly goes out of its way to state that the engineers do not create the xenomorph. David does. Uh, okay. But but using the engineers' highly volatile genetic creation that he then experiments on humanity, and it's through humanity that we get the first face hugger that comes from Shaw, or it's something else that it's just. So many, somebody will sit down and pause this film and, and piece all the pictures in the background together and find out the exact order that all this happened in. But until then, it's just pure speculation. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, what you touched on through um, iterations, Carrie, and then what Jason touched on with mortality are both <laughs> weird things that I took and examining um, Scott himself and his own legacy. And it's something that I, it was just a sort of natural progression from having watched the film uh, that I, a couple of things that I picked on up on, and it does tie into a lot of what was, has already been said. So, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to repeat ourselves too many times when we go to Rivera to Ozymandias or um, the original alien. So what I, what I was looking at uh, and what captured my attention in the film on the first watch was the themes of play, the two themes, one, was the dialogues between David and Walter? Uh, obviously, the, the, I ca- you know immediately catching in the film because it's where the the crux of the philosophy is. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a beautiful sequence. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and it's it's a it's a couple of them too. Even when they they have the the great long take of him playing the flute is is wonderful. But then once uh, Walter's starting to catch on that David might be up to something uh, they, they get they get they get another touching moment where they, they bounce ideas off each other uh, and, and, and and philosophies against one another and that, it's it's super fun and the other thing is what Carrie was talking about again the the recurring beats of the original I took it far more plainly that Covenant is very intentionally a repurposed remake of Alien with some of the beats from Prometheus carrying on some of the narrative threads and thematic threads into what is essentially the alien structure. You know, the distress signal calls a ship to an alien planet away from its main purpose, on which hostile nature of the planet, the distress signal is misread. Meanwhile, an android turns on the crew, sinister intentions, alien gets on board the ship, killing off the crew, alien gets shot out into space through an airlock by a strong survivor, female survivor type. Like, the the beats are there. Alien Covenant is very assuredly alien. Right, yeah. (laughs) But it's the little little Prometheus refinements, some of which are not refinements, some are just, you know, things that happen in Prometheus, like the, the Weller. (laughs) <laughs> uh, that, that, that stops the the ship from communicating with everybody, and or contains the ship on land. That happened right. again, uh, but uh, also things like the the philosophy from from Prometheus that 
uh, Jason was mostly looking into. And uh, we get the mutations. And, of course, everyone's favorite terrible radio equipment where no one else can talk to each other. That came back from Prometheus. You know, that maybe that was a problem in the original Alien. It's been a while since I watched it that people were, like, shouting at microphones and nobody could hear each other. But I know it's it's a standard screenwriting tension trick with, like, what the fuck are they saying? We need to get closer. Or, yeah. Or we got a better signal. But, like, it, this happened in Prometheus as well. It's like, they just lost contact with those two assholes getting lost in the tunnel. It's like, why can't we get in touch with them? It's because of the storm. The same thing happened in this film. That that stuff, iterative and maybe self-defeating a little, but whatever. That's, that's a total diatribe. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so the important thing is that it maintains the framework of Alien. And when we look at the discussions with Walter and David, and especially in their discussion over Walter's uh, protection of Daniels, we see that David accuses Walter of protecting Daniels over love, where Walter denies it as duty. And that parallels between those two characters are very much defined by those two terms in which they see each other. Mm, David point. is a is a creative type, uh, if, you know, to a genocidal degree, but a creative type uh, and far more expressive and an all-around human, uh, whereas Walter is uh, duty-bound. He's far more loyal to the crew and apparently has had a lot of these features uh, recalled from David's earlier model. Uh, Yeah, updates. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) updates, which uh, seems to make him somewhat more subservient and... David chooses to read that as more romantic. But the point is that uh, that was interesting because it, it reminded me of, uh, and this, I mean, we're, we're not saving anybody by delving into the pretenses here, but that it reminded me of Plato's Republic. Well. Because <laughs> that's a thing I read on a casual basis. <laughs> uh, yeah, not to mention that it's also, you know, Cain and Abel from the Bible as well. Mm, good point. In yeah. what sense? The whole relationship between those two. But carry on. This is going to be good stuff on on art. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> this is art. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, well, anyway, so I mean, I, I'll, a quick rundown of Republic for those who have never heard, it, uh, heard of it is that it's one of Plato's Socratic dialogues in which he embodies the voice uh, of his old teacher, Socrates. In, in most of these dialogues, he plays Socrates as a character who goes out and just sort of ha- starts conversations with certain, usually figures of the time, um, and sort of debates understandings of how society runs, or philosophy, or education, and mathematics. And Republic is deemed one of his better, or probably greatest one, in which Socrates in this is set on creating or establishing a ideal city-state, essentially a a utopian society. And the dialogue is mostly about understanding what should and should not be permitted into the city. And in in that, they discuss a lot of things, especially in one important part to this conversation, they discuss education and what should be permitted with regards to poetry, music, stories, theology, and drama. And here they discuss the control of what should be allowed, including when discussing the gods. Uh, And so I got a quote. Then we must assume a control over the narrators of this class of tales as well as over the others, and beg them not simply to revile, but rather to commend the world below, imitating to them that their descriptions are untrue and will do harm to our future warriors. That will be our duty, he said. So we're seeing this idea that creating the city-state 
we establish a sense of duty. And immediately we're seeing a parallel that what's getting rejected are things that could be harmful to the education of singular concepts in the city. And a lot of that comes from creativity uh, and, and storytelling and things that generally introduce new ideas to people, nice. for better or worse. The example given in that quote is that in the retelling of the stories of the Greek gods, uh, a lot of the stories at the time started to focus on how Zeus, for example, was a huge rapist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and how a, lot of, uh, how a lot of these supposedly virtuous figures should have uh, should remain virtuous, and but the stories of the time were now starting to tell them as if they were a lot more human, a lot more flawed. And the idea that Socrates in this was arguing against was that they should remain virtuous because here they are, they should be the image that man should project towards the idea of this unobtainable perf ideal of certain aspects of perfection. Uh, or, in his words, virtue. Uh, and another quote to sort of tie into that is, Then we shall be right in getting rid of the lamentations of famous men, and making them over to women, and not even to women who are good for anything. That's fun. Or to men <laughs> of a baser sort. <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey, it's, what, like, nearly two millennia ago. Things are still not that great. <laughs> no, not according to Scott, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That those who are being educated by us to be the defenders of their country may scorn to do the like. That will be very right. So, again, there's this concept that duty should be the main drive in this, in this society. That those who join the city-state must join with a purpose. Uh, and the closer to a singular purpose, the better. Uh, and they, give on, they go on to give examples of those who do not have a singular purpose. Like, for example, those who are actors. Um, because actors imitate reality and they imitate the ideas of others. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but when Plato was writing this, the whole concept of uh, nationalism wasn't really around yet, right? You didn't even have nations, of course, in our common sense of the word, but they had city-states. But he was arguing for this idea that you would work towards the greater good of this much larger collective yeah. Um, and I, and, and that was fairly new, wasn't it? And so, so he's basically arguing that duty is the glue that holds these larger, uh, more civilized, yeah. organized societies together. General subservience and all having your place. Absolutely. But I mean, it's interesting because yes, duty, that's exactly what Plato was getting at with the evolution of Christianity. You'll have Jesus basically, uh, who's basically his message was love one another as I have Oh, good point. So you have that yeah. love versus duty. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. There's that so Christian seeing... versus pagan kind of perspective again. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, then the religion became duty in itself, yeah. you know. We judiciously follow the doctrines that are laid out for us if you're a religious person. And I mean, well, think of, think of the irony anyway in that this is Plato laying out these rules of this ideal quote-unquote city-state, but he's doing it through creative writing you know this is this is this is a drama essentially it's a dialogue so the self-awareness that he's writing this is that without this he can't get across these ideas but once they create the city this idea will be outlawed much like the rest right uh and it ties uh, it, it goes layers into layers on 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 how these forms 
contain truth in them. And it is more about the impact this truth will have on society. And, 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 and as they discuss the idea that one person should only be perfectly good at one thing and not distill their talents and knowledge over multiple areas, as another pe- person should be able to do that, like who should know better uh, about medicine than a physician, right. you know, no one. So therefore, only the physician should deal with medicine. Huh. He's talking about social engineering then 2000 years. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Isn't that is. fascinating? That's right? amazing. Uh, and, yeah. Fantastic. And, and what's great about uh, what's interesting about the way he foresees it is that he understands that for that to work, ultimately there has to be somebody at the top of the chain who breaks the rules, is the person who deems what is knowledgeable for everyone, because there is one person whose job it is to be knowledgeable knowledgeable of all things. Uh, and so th- there's this idea of a like a philosopher king, and he goes into uh, this in this quote, is like, and again, truth should be highly valued if... As we were saying, a lie is useless to the gods and useful only as a medicine to men, then the use of such medicines should be restricted to physicians. So essentially what he's saying there is that there's a person whose role it is to know what the lies are and what the truth is, and that to shape the the, the society. So there's duty, but it at, at the core of it, interestingly, paradoxically almost, there's there needs to be an assertion of somebody who foresees art and takes what's useful about it to adapt to the society, but everybody else is subservient in in their singular roles. I I mean that's I, probably maybe going too far regarding where we're going to come back into covenant here, but we see the uh, this the concept of in in this case uh, Judy winning out over art, but also being informed by it. Oh yeah, uh, nice. Art is forbidden. But it, at the same time, is required on some level, just not the basis of the society, just an inf- informative factor into the society. So it's interesting here to reflect back on Scott and his position as surrogate father of the Alien franchise, because let's not forget that this, he, he was not the only hand that has crafted this. Uh, in fact, he in the original Alien, he came in a little later than most of the, the writing mm-hmm. process. He's just... He followed it all the way, but he's definitely... One of many hands. <laughs> and trying to rip everyone off as he went. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> He's, he is a shrewd businessman, and we cannot deny it. I mean, fucking Scott Free is one of the most prominent production companies going around there these days. And that's not because he, he doesn't know how to deal with money. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, he's in the unique position of a director-producer of the franchise that made his name, uh, essentially, back in the day, and can so govern the truth here. And and that's interesting. He has now become the philosopher king of the series, and he's choosing the direction of the films after long having no control of the direction of the series. So here he takes the role of, of this philosopher king and can cherry-pick what elements should be kept and what should be removed before continuing on with his legacy. And that's what's so interesting about the structure being so close to the original Alien. Because we essentially get the same story, but the details have been changed and altered in line with a new vision. One that attempts to distill the essentials of the original, while incorporating what Ridley would likely deem truth into the franchise. And what would the truth be in this case? Well, it would be David winning out over the crew and Walter by the end. And through that we see, almost paradoxically that art is favored over duty, according to the film, because, you know, David's the successor. But maybe he's just doubling down on the dangers of art. 
uh, as Plato laid them out, and he's actually following through with the idea of the Republic outlining the, the creative side of things. And so th- I, there are m- maybe a million ways to interpret this, and we can go on for an age, but I will... F- I- Found the most interesting to be that when thinking about Scott's intentions with the franchise as a whole, right? As we were talking about earlier, why why come back to Alien after being away for so long? And I think the hint that keeps it all together is Ozymandias. Uh, and I mean, the look on my works, ye mighty and despair line. It makes almost for a cruel joke in the poem. Yeah, as his empire is now nothing but sand, save for the lone statue. And so it, Ridley, it, it, he kind of by tying this in, he's maybe looking at entropy here, almost. Yep. The another term from of, chaos theory. Yeah, of, of course. <laughs> uh, you see, you see what I'm saying about this whole kind of tying in together. Mm-hmm. You know, this, the, all these constant threads. It's it's like um, what was that thing, Jason? You did for Magnolia? Was it thread structure? Yep, thread structure. <laughs> Yeah, and all these combinations, but you know, it's something a little more contained than that because we're clearly just recycling the same material. <laughs> uh, Don't tell anybody. Yeah. So. Yeah. No. Yeah. We all we actually all sat in a room and just took three sides of the same straw. <laughs> that's a three-sided straw. Ignore me. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's yeah. incredible. That's, that's the hashtag for this mirror. episode: three-sided straw. <laughs> three straw. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so we look at entropy and this inevitability of our demise at the hands of history and the deterioration of our work through time, no matter how grand, which we see in Ozymandias, and how could you not look at Scott and his allusion to his own legacy? I mean, consider what happened to the Alien franchise when it left his guide. It got a good twist as an action blockbuster, but after that... Its form twisted and twisted until it was basically a pale imitation of itself, which... By the way, invitation theory, not only just tying into what Carrie was talking about, uh, and, and, and that invitation plays into as a, as a core structure of chaos theory, but also mm-hmm. invitation of forms is another long, winding uh, theory that Plato goes into, and in that each invitation from the imagined or perfect, which we have never seen, of an object is a, a second degrade in value. Right. Uh, and I mean, we can go, I'm not going to go into it because we don't have time, but it would, it would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> in theory. Yeah, so the Alien franchise slows, slowly loses its way, distorted by the hands of others, which we can see explored in Covenant as the mutant experiments created by David. Right. Who also is taking control of the works of others and distorting them. So linking that into Republic, we see the loss of virtue in the initial interpretation by the hands of others who only dabble in the form. These are the things that the Republic was trying to block out. And here, Scott singles out the artist, whose reckless handling of the series has caused it to lose its original intention, either as a weapon of fear or at least as a work of artistic intention like the original. Interestingly, though, you can compound this by playing out Ridley's role in the story. And here, I kind of want to break... Ridley Scott into three versions of himself. Uh, so yeah, the three elements of um, Ridley Scott I want to break down into is legacy, influence, and present day. And here we can consider the three elements that those are portrayed as. One is Peter Wayland, as Jason was going into, David's creator. And while you seen him, it was as more as the mortal Ridley. Was that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so I mean, and yeah. While you were saying he was the mortal, I that's interesting because I seen him as the the version of Scott that is Scott's influence. 
And mm-hmm. we see that because he, in this case, is David's creator. He imbues in him the artistic vision and purpose that causes him to distort the message entirely and ultimately work against unworthy humanity. And perhaps we can see this as Scott's influence on future generations, who would then distort his work. But then, of course, we uh, we can go further than that and look at maybe Scott the legacy. And in this case, I think Scott sees himself also as the engineer. And I'm not just saying him, but the entire crew of human beings that worked on the original Alien. Because this is this is the legacy of the many, and to see them all utterly destroyed at the hands of David... <laughs> I thought it was a fantastic image, and it was interesting to see that uh, the engineer is ultimately undone by David, destroyed by their own twisted creation. It's perhaps a little melodramatic, but note that the weapon also destroys their city. Their collection of work aside from the weapon has been collapsed, so it doesn't just affect the people who worked on the original Alien, but all of their collective franchises are a little bit tarred by their association to Alien, and I think maybe Scott feels a little bit that way. Because, well, I mean, other than him being dragged back into facing the Alien franchise, of all the franchises he chooses to come back to, it's the one that or that broke through first. To think about how then the series, how, how the fans drag him back in or have always claimed for him to back, and then how they abuse him on his return. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can understand why he might be going, hmm, maybe... Delving, delving into this uh, this monster again was maybe a little bit of a mistake, but it's not my fault. David blew it up. <laughs> I wouldn't have been in this position if people didn't make Aliens vs. Predator Requiem. <laughs> <laughs> Good That's point. So, so Scott, could Scott be bemoaning his shackles to the franchise? That's where modern Scott kind of comes in, who I want to posit as Walter. And here we can see... Uh, really, Scott's oh, cool, sense right. of duty to the franchise. Right. I like that. Yeah. So yeah, and and by drawing a, a utilitarian view on on vision and art into essentially the cyclic story that is Alien, Scott gives us the most pessimistic Alien story yet. We see it in the end that not only David wins, but with the Alien frozen and stored away, he moves on to new experiments and nearly limitless resources, creating the impression that the Alien franchise will continue to forever be abused at the hands of others and warped into shapes still unknown. And under that light, I mean, look at the final scene of that endless cargo bay of humans in pods. I mean, that is haunting. It is. It is <laughs> yeah, that's true. So. so, yeah, so here's here's modern Scott as, as Walter, his defeated soul. We can see uh, also the extension of Scott's guilt as a surrogate for the perceived sense of duty he upholds for the series. His ultimate defeat at the hands of David after a struggle suggesting that perhaps even Scott's attempts to reclaim the series under the guise of creative invigoration, thus the duplicity of David, uh, and his inevitable death shows his pessimism to the future of the franchise and the losing war that is preserving the great works of a person from the hands of the future idealists. And that's where we tie into Ozymandias. Mm-hmm. You see here that from this reading of it, it's so futile to have a legacy because in the end, it's always going to be sand. And this is, I, 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 I choose to see Covenant as, as Scott reinterpreting his initial faith in the series that he brought with Prometheus and then bashing it on the head. <laughs> it's like, what was I thinking? Oh God, man, that's fucking <laughs> It is, it really is, but I, I, I think it ties really into what you were saying, Jason, about mortality. 
he's he's taken all of these into account and he's seen just the most desolate image of defeat because ultimately you can't control the works of others tampering with your stuff i mean we live in remake culture now wait till you see 20 years from now 100 years from now 1000 years from now we only had so many greek uh, stories to tell wait until they get a hold of all the reimaginings of greek stories with the marvel universe wait until we uh you know we start telling frankenstein to the re-frankensteining of you know we basically did that because prometheus the modern prometheus was frankenstein that was the name of the book yeah that's true <laughs> I, I would say, though, uh, just to push back a little bit, I love your theory. Um, I like the the idea that uh, that there's a side of, of Ridley Scott that's um, performing his duty to the rest of us, I guess, to create more yeah. alien movies. Uh, but I would say <laughs> that I, I just don't believe that a person could approach a project with so much vigor and clear love that he has for for yeah. this project. If really what he wanted to say is, I am super bummed about everything that happened with Alien, and I just want to escape it. You know what I mean? I, you, you don't escape yeah, I, it by making yet more movies that open up a wide avenue to a, a whole lot more um, um, sequels to come. So, so well, I think that I don't want to argue with your theory. I think you're bang on and no, you make I, excellent points, but I really don't think he's despairing quite that much about his work or, or really is that pessimistic about what the, the rest of the sequels will be. Sure. I mean, it's interesting because if we want to take a mildly more positive twist on it, we could see it like, uh, Jason was saying about the deaf cafes. I mean, this is this is just you know grandfathering mortality, uh, and you know ultimately admitting on some level that maybe working towards legacy is a bit of a futile endeavor, is probably going to do us some good because it will maybe take ourselves a little less seriously, and you know maybe just enjoy a stupid sci-fi movie where an alien kills people. That's my <laughs> that was where I was getting at this whole time that whole long lecture. It was about me. Just telling people to cheer up and enjoy Alien Covenant. <laughs> was that where you were going? Because it was a no, little... No, I'm totally improvising. I'm, I'm taking the piss. <laughs> I, think it, I think it ties in nice and neatly what you said. But I mean, I love the fact that the show is going to be structured according to how Alien Covenant is structured as well. Which is essentially a palindrome. Where after the prologue, yeah. you'll have... Uh, Walter in the ship at the beginning going through the motions, checking embryos, waking people up, and then he'll meet and then he'll meet David in the middle, and then you'll have uh, that other aspect where, you know, uh, David at the end who's also chucking embryos back in and putting people to sleep. So, you know, we have this coming full circle, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. We're having yeah. that mirror image that, that Carrie, uh, the repetition that Carrie was talking about as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the um, the arc we've built for David, where he started off as as uh, a view into Ridley Scott's immortality, then with Carrie, his gradual decline into madness, and then with me, the harbinger of death for us all. So, I mean... <laughs> there you go. It's, but it's not so great for David. <laughs> no, no. I think that I, if I were to choose, I mean, even though this is how I read the film, I, I would personally say that the nature of storytelling is that we are iterative uh, as much as plato would have liked it, the idea of us maintaining some form of purity on society and how we interpret arts and and how we look at things the the idea is ultimately we gain a lot from iterating uh and that from passing on stories and retelling stories and reshaping stories to what is essential and necessary 
and that's kind of what a postmodern society would be like. We uh, we essentially continually evolve slowly but surely through our means of retelling stories, and that's why I've never been against. If we want to take a cinematic look at things, I've never been against the remake culture uh, because for all the crap that we get, and we do get a lot of crap, there's going to be one really good one somewhere along the lines. Yeah. And if if I'll posit one. Alien Covenant is a perfectly fine remake of Alien. It's not a you know one to one remake, but it's a it's a reinterpretation of the original source material with mm-hmm. updated views, and ultimately really recontextualizing his original legacy and works into something in this shape and form that basically says uh, you know my legacy isn't all that isn't all it's cracked up to be. That's fascinating and interesting and something that is useful to make a story with, even if we use the same beats of the original. So I mean, we already have proof in the pudding. This is good, and so I choose to be an optimist about legacy, even if I also totally understand that it is a self defeating and endeavor. <laughs> Completely agree with you. I'm just like you. I'll be like Elizabeth Shaw. I choose to believe in this franchise. <laughs> like five minutes later, chest open, <laughs> operating table. <laughs> I take the role of I take the role of the fanatic. Clearly, here on this three-sided straw. So <laughs> you are the third third side of the straw. That's right. <laughs> That's, some would say it's invisible. Some say the third side of a straw doesn't exist. But you know better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I wanted to just quickly do two things. There's something I wanted to address uh, before closing out, and um, I wanted to alleviate the yeah, discussion a little. Wait off this pessimism a little. <laughs> what we really enjoyed exactly what we really enjoyed about the film. But before we get to that, I wanted to address what people are calling stupid actions by stupid characters that plague the Alien franchise. And I want uh-huh. to go back to what I was reading. According to Becker again, there's a chapter in his book that I read that's called. The Failures of Heroism, in which he explains Freud's theories of group psychology. Freud detailed that in groups, adults became children again, and that the leader essentially took the place of the parental figure. Each individual in the group, therefore, no longer thought for themselves, so abandoning their egos to the leaders, establishing an inferior power to superior power dynamic. Because group dynamic and power is established by the leader, the group fears less because they believe they have the superior albeit omnipotent, powers of the leader. As a result, groups may come off as stupid because in times of terror, they fail to see that the leader's powers are an illusion. Becker states, quote, The real world is too terrible to admit. It tells man that he is a small, trembling animal who will decay and die. Illusion changes all this, makes man seem important, vital to the universe, immortal in some way. The masses look to leaders to give them just the untruth that they need, the leader continues the illusion. And so I thought that was interesting. When, whenever you look to the leaders in the Alien franchise, if we look at the leaders that die, you'll have Dallas in the first Alien that's gone, but no one gives Ripley the proper respect she deserves. And so they ultimately get into a lot of trouble. The same thing in Prometheus. The first thing that they do is they challenge Shaw and her beliefs, mm. right? So the leaders have to maintain, and Holloway is the leader of the group, and he gets killed at the beginning, which sends everything into disarray as well. Now look yeah. at it mm-hmm. again in Alien Covenant. James Franco's not even in the fucking movie. The leader's already gone. 
I was going to say they they make a they draw a more pointed attention to that very phenomenon in Alien Covenant because yeah the James Franco character is removed right away and so there's I totally forgot oh yeah that's so true yeah and so the guy that has to step in he's a little nervous his wife is is like saying hey you know you can do this people are looking up to you but um but it, it goes exactly to you, to what you read there Jason uh, and and then after he's removed you know you even have um, um, Danny or Daniels stepping into the position at the end. So it's very conscious about about the role of the leader and how people look to the leader and, and how effective is that really, right? Exactly. Absolutely. I, I love the idea that people are going to twist this to um, be how they interpret Ridley Scott as leader of, of Prometheus for the Alien franchise and, and the fans. And it's like, they were just leading us into a pit of despair. <laughs> <laughs> there is no legacy. It's futile. There you go. It's, it's yeah, possible. The you didn't, you didn't really put bad. it back on a positive note, Jason. <laughs> well, shit. Yeah, you could apply it to Scott. But as I said before, I'm like Shaw. I choose to believe in this leader. And I think he's making all the right decisions right now. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely making uh, incredibly interesting positions. I'm, I'm willing to absolutely. I mean, the idea, the, the issue with um, these these big franchises is that they draw such a wide berth of a crowd. If this were a small indie hit, we'd be we'd be taking our time to acknowledge that this is. And I think Carrie said it as well. When um, if this didn't come under the name Alien uh, or attached to the oh, yeah. Alien franchise. 100%. We would take it a totally different direction and praise it. You know, you would hear. I I guarantee it. If if somebody re-released this film to a small like collective audience that had seen Alien, and uh, and named it something else and kind of swapped out the Alien in it for something that looks almost exactly the same but just right. different enough, people would immediately praise it as the best thing since Alien. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, if we want to look at it, there is a key line in the fucking movie that could apply to the franchise where you were talking about, Lee, especially. And it's David, you know, who talks about humanity as a dying species that's grasping for resurrection. I mean, if mm. that doesn't encapsulate the Alien franchise <laughs> as a whole, I mean, that's kind of that's what the point is. And I mean, if you have David... One of my favorite scenes in the movie is the uh, sex scene in the shower at the end where you'll have Scott kind of a little bit repurposing the Hitchcockian nature of it, you know? Yeah. yeah um, these uh, old the tropes. Terrifying, <laughs> there's that. But at the same time, you have David's quote coming to fruition with the xenomorph basically cutting them short in their procreation. He's not allowing them to actually have sex. He's killing them in the process. Therefore, yeah. he's denying them the ability oh, to give birth to good. a new human being. And I thought that that scene was fucking cool. When you see that that tail go up and she's like, what? It's basically saying, get the fuck away because you're next, you know? And you have that thing come through the guy's mouth. I thought that was a brilliant sequence, you know? Where he's like, no, this has to end. You guys are done. We're not allowing you to continue. Mm, that's a yeah. really good point. I will say that um, while I, you know, obviously appreciate a lot of the themes, I will say that some of them may be a little too on the nose uh, I would say the shower scene is probably one of them, mm-hmm. one that it quite quite clearly addresses, less than it addresses so blatantly than it only finds a small window of time to work it in. Yeah, I get uh, that. Rather than, than really explore it. It feels kind of cheap. Uh, but it's not not that it wasn't a good idea, just that it, it didn't get the time and attention it deserved, because it, there's definitely something there. I'd say the same for the 
the David misquoting Ozymandias thing. I think that's an interesting and key part of his personality and his character. I think it's a really fascinating decision to have him be so... Or to take the great works of others and misinterpret them and that be indicative of his reckless nature as this creative monster. Um, that that's worked in at some point it is is fascinating. But to me, it just if we play too hard on the on his ability to recall classical music note for note uh, and and know who did it and what year and so on. Mm-hmm. That he that there's this one oversight. Uh, and it's so pivotal in the story without really any setup to me yeah you talked to me rushed yeah and i mean like uh, there's little things like that i the film could have used a little less attachment to the to the tropes of alien because the film stands perfectly well as a as a solid sequel to prometheus which also did the same thing probably structurally a little better and a little more compelling mm. but this film does more with the material than Prometheus, I would say, it, it's not it's not a perfect rewatch to me, basically. But it's at, at the same time, I, I'm not I'm not here to debate it as a as a. I'm certainly not here to say it's a bad film. In fact, I think it's a really good film. I a question is it's worth as a great film, but I certainly promote it as a one of the later year experiments that was certainly worth seeing to the end. And I'm glad I, I'm not too interested in seeing Scott go further. Uh, but if he finds an interesting way to continue on his on his introversion and uh, of the alien franchise, yeah. I absolutely all for it. I don't know where you could go really next that would be not that would not feel tedious regurgitating some of the material now in two films. But I feel like this was the perfect cap off for the series. I don't think we need the little the little filler bits between the actual chronology of the of the world itself, and nobody gives a shit really. <laughs> but. Um, I feel that we we got almost all we needed from this, and I, I think to push it one further might be a mistake. Oh, but he's going to, though. And there's going to be fans out there <laughs> like me who are just happy to have more. And, uh, yeah. I mean, this movie exceeded my expectations in terms of its artistic and intellectual content. So if the next oh, one is, <laughs> is just, you know, just kind of like Jurassic Park, it's like, okay, we threw the dinosaurs at you in this locale now we're going to throw the dinosaurs at you in that locale and that's really all there is to it if it's just mm-hmm. david coming down to earth uh loosing these xenomorphs onto earth and we get to see how that plays out i'll be in that seat you know i'll be there watching with my popcorn and i will enjoy it <laughs> yeah well true if he if uh if, if scott feels like he would like to do his version of aliens i i mean i'd absolutely watch that that sounds fucking brilliant <laughs> i don't know I'm looking forward to seeing this. Like I said, I mean, to me, uh, because they're very personal films, in my opinion, anyway, obviously, yeah. like, uh, some people are going to listen to this and, like, Jason's lost his fucking marbles. Well, well both our theories very much backed you up there, I think. So, uh, yeah. But I, I'd agree. And I'm not a psychologist. We're so. all going to be called out. <laughs> but... This is a fitting way to end the second season of Atlantic Screen Connection. In my opinion, I mean, going back to the really hardcore analysis of films, which is what we like to do most of the mm-hmm. time. And, mm-hmm. and I really want there to be another one of these. Maybe not two, but another one just to cap it off. I hope because- there's five or six. <laughs> <laughs> Now who's the monster? Have you learned nothing from this film? <laughs> I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding a little bit. I think, I think that would um, cheapen the thing. All right. So have you guys detailed your favorite scenes in the film? Mine was the shower scene, like I said. <laughs> really? I'm very surprised at that. Oh, but uh, I mean, there's so many. But I, I, I thought 
that one was fun because, you know, I mean, I, I could name a bunch. I, I like the spores. Um, I like the infection in the ear. I like the nose. I like the transformation of the aliens. Yeah. I like the oh. I like the tension that there was in the ship, uh, you know, for the first um, birth of the, the one that comes uh, out the guy's uh, back. I don't know. Oh, that was yeah, great. Yeah, that's Wonderful. what I was going to say is my, was so was my cool. favorite. I mean, that was just like, I mean, irrespective of all the readings uh, of all the alien mythos, What's so cool about that scene is that it, it's a whole, it's a very very fun and very real uh, individual scare mm-hmm. that that highlights that sort of human panic. Yeah, and has nothing really. I mean, like I'm sure there's a way to tie it into the story if you want, but I think just the just the way it highlights the terror of decision making in a moment like that. And that you just lock them in and you you don't know what to do, so you just leave them there to die. I mean, that was like, I could totally understand that. Not that I'd say I would do the same in the same position, but I mean, I got it, <laughs> you know? And to me, it was just like, wow, this... I have not seen this in an alien film. I've probably seen some similar kind of things before, but this it was just a really tense, well-thought-out scene. Yeah. And I enjoyed it, irrespective of the rest of the story, and it was great. Yeah, I love that scene too. Um, for me, I think my favorite image from the whole movie was uh, the floating head in the pond. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Which I used like three times. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think that Scott enjoyed it so much that you keep coming back to it. People yeah. come running in looking for her. And, and not th- only that, like every every time they come in, it's just as the head is turning towards the camera. It's never just like, it's never just facing down. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, and you've got it's the, like, it's like the floating head comes there. to greet them like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's an the intention sa- there. Sorry about that. Go with oh, I was just going to say, you've got the sound of the dripping water. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's great. It's a great scene. I mean, set. I welcome the, the use of liquid that was very much missing in Prometheus. This one is drenched in liquid. That's Alien right. Covenant mm. is soaking to the brim in whether it's blood or weird alien goop or it's all like a water. rainforest terrain yeah. as well it's all yeah it's very dumb um, film <laughs> yeah the floating head to me i read a little bit too far into this one and this might be reaching a little but i thought it was a reference to saint peter uh, denying christ three times before the crucifixion and i thought it was interesting because of the subversion of of uh, like uh, the uh, Chris giving birth to the Antichrist, people not wanting <laughs> to admit to seeing this uh, devil, this satanic thing, you know, this this advent of the Antichrist. You'll have this denying three times of what the hell is going on in that pond, you know? So I thought that it was kind of cool. Ah, you know? very good. Definitely reading too much into it, but that's, I mean, that's great. <laughs> yeah, but that's it. So, guys, would you recommend Ridley Scott's Alien Covenant? Obviously. Okay. <laughs> Lee clearly <laughs> yeah no abs- absolutely I mean I-, I really enjoyed it initially as just a fun horror sci-fi film I mean it is kind of my I love sci- science fiction in general but this is just a good just a good all round popcorn crowd pleasing film that also happens to be working on a number of levels in ways that I enjoy to see in films so it's got that sort of come back to uh, revisit um, appeal that that goes straight to me but even just to general audiences I'd say ignore the anti-hype that's going around this film is just a really enjoyable time and if you don't take it too seriously you'll still enjoy it if you take it too seriously but don't want to put in the effort to understanding it then you're not going to enjoy it uh, that's a sh- and it's a shame but yeah, what can you do <laughs> uh, I'm 50-50 on recommending it 
Um, as much really? As, mm. I, as much as I liked it, as much as I really love, uh, I love it for the reasons I love it. And the thing is that if you're walking into this film, you know, thinking that it's an alien film, that second act is going to get bogged down. You're going to be like, what the fuck is going on? I if didn't you think so. haven't seen Prometheus. And so, I mean, you really have to understand the concepts hmm. of Pro uh, that are going on in Prometheus to actually find an appreciation for Covenant's second act. And so because it's buried in all the jargon and all the references and things like that, I don't know if someone who's basically just this casual viewer, he's expecting to go in and watch the gore film that is essentially the last 15 minutes of the movie. He might actually be really disappointed that, you know, you'll have a little bit of gore in the first act, a little bit of gore in the third act, but then you'll have the whole destruction of, of you know, the engineer's home planet everybody's going to be like, what the fuck is going on? Who is this? And he comes in. I saw him in an Assassin's Creed. Doesn't he look exactly <laughs> like that with the hood? You know, I think it could actually be confusing yeah, to an audience I get that wants that. to see it as, a, as, a, as an action film. They'll all be like, what the fuck are they talking about? Okay, so, so I'm, I'm a little... You're 50, saying 50. you don't recommend it on its own no. as a standalone. If you haven't seen any of the Alien or Prometheus movies, this isn't the first one to no. see. I don't think that's too much of a criticism, though, because that would be like walking into Godfather 3 and being like, I don't understand. You know, I, I, dis I just disagree. I mean, I think that while all that interesting uh, information and intellectual side of things is really fun and quite, you know, prevalent in the second act. What's also working at the exact same time is very standard tension. I mean, every scene is 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 dimly lit. There's creepy little hints at something going wrong. We're seeing drawings of aliens we haven't even met yet. We see this guy that just genuinely can't be trusted. You don't need to know who he is. Okay. I think that, yes, you'll be missing out on a couple of things, but I, I genuinely... I'm not very forthcoming with telling people to watch Prometheus again. I mean, I hadn't seen it in about five, four or five years once I sat this. I thought I had forgotten most of it. But I, to be honest, I didn't feel like what I walked away with was very much informed by my relationship to okay, Prometheus. I felt that I just enjoyed it from a, a general standpoint of being a well-put-together horror film. What I'm saying is just essentially you're not walking into what the trailers told you you are walking into so just be a little okay. more that's cautious true. is what i'm saying yeah absolutely i mean if you got to the end of this podcast and that's what you want to walk away with as well i mean yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be ridiculous like now you're Listen way too to these prepared pretentious fucks talk about <laughs> psychology and chaos theory and fucking Plato. <laughs> but that's what people come here for right <laughs> hopefully the pretentious fucks exactly hopefully yeah well, there are a lot of people that are looking forward to disagreeing with us <laughs> Bring it on. I cherish it. Yeah. All right, cool. But I mean, we could have gone on for a long fucking time. I mean, I went through half my notes. We already yeah, have. Exactly. So we're going to have to end it out there. Shall we close this out, sir? Absolutely. Excellent. So, Carrie, thank you once again. I can't think of a better person with thank who to close again. the season two out with than you, my dear. And it was so cool to get to go to the movie oh, twice awesome. with you. This was great. Yeah, like I was telling you, I think it's the first time in my life I've gone to see the same movie in the in the theaters twice. Yes, you did so. mention that. That was so cool. Yeah, yeah. Really? Excellent. Yeah. So where can we find you online, miss? All right. So, yes, I uh, mostly am just on Twitter these days, at Carrie Lindland. So that's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. 
Um, I've been a guest on this show before and on the earlier film faculty um, podcasts, and I occasionally uh, submit some blog posts to Jason at his filmfaculty.wordpress.com. Yeah, so I actually was interested in, uh, I've got a lot more ideas and details to support my analysis with the chaos theory there, so I'm interested in doing this up in a longer version for a blog post, uh, which which hopefully I will have done and out there fairly soon. And these guys will be able to put uh, the link to that in the show notes. So stay tuned if you have, if you're hungry for more on KS Theory. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. But, yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> I think other than that too, I've finally started to put out some episodes on the New Books Network. Uh, so if you search for Great. that, those are um, scholarly or interviews with authors of scholarly books. And so I'm host of the um, New Books and Secularism channel. I want to give another shout out to uh, Hugo's podcast. Uh, you can find him at Hugo's, H-U-G-O-S podcast. And uh, this guy is doing, um, he's basically reading through the Hugo Award winners, uh, the novels that have won the science fiction Hugo Awards. He's not doing it in order because he didn't want to get bogged down with the 1950s, 60s stuff, which I think was a good decision. So he he's bringing a guest on to every show and they just talk about um, about these science ex- excellent science fiction books. I'm going to be a guest on that probably later in August. But what I've heard from that uh, those guys so far is just really, really quality, quality chats about good science fiction. So if you're into that, I would definitely point you in their direction. That's at Hugo's podcast. And so I'll be putting out links to that as well on my Twitter feed as they come out. So, so yeah, that's where people can find me. Awesome. Great. Lee, where can we find you, sir? Yeah, yeah. So uh, if you're looking to interact with me, you can find me at Big Pick Reviews on Twitter. I also post stuff to uh, the our Atlantic Stream Connection Facebook and uh, Instagram page. I do some hot takes and stuff like that. I might do some videos as well. I go to America yes. next month, so I might have some fun things to show you if I see anything interesting. Uh, so definitely keep an eye out on those feeds. Uh, but if you want to see my reviews, I mean, nothing's in the pipeline for the moment being because I'm on a bit of a hiatus and Jason's going to be taking over editing duties uh, at the site. But if you want to read my review for Alien Covenant, which would be handy, it's very short and it's a little wordy in a, in a flirty kind of way, uh, <laughs> you can you can read that at bigpicturereviews.co.uk. Uh, and also some other takes, not on Alien per se, but what about... Uh, King Arthur, we we totally didn't do that on the show, and Darren did a good review for it, so absolutely you could read that, for example. Should uh, I check so it out? The movie? It, uh, the film? <laughs> he he enjoyed it uh, for what it's worth, but I mean he, he, I'm still like C+, so I mean... Alright. No? <laughs> <laughs> cool. Alright, so my name is Jason Michael, you can find me at Atlantic SC on Twitter. Check out the Facebook page. Uh, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this season of Atlantic Screen Connection. We'll be back, what, sometime in July? Yeah, absolutely. Late? Something like that? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I would say we're going to start uh, recording again at the end of June. So probably first episode of season three, we're likely to launch somewhere early July. Cool. And so that's it. So 
This basically goes out as, as big shout-outs uh, to Mike Denniston from War Machine vs. Warhorse. Thank you so much for all your time, the time that you spent with me uh, online. David Hart from Pop Culture Case Study for all the time that you spent with us, promoting the show especially. So cool. I want to say a thank you to Tim Costa, Hermano De Silva, and Walter Vinci from the First Time Watchers podcast. We love playing their promo on the show. And I was on there recently, so thanks again for having me over. I'm looking forward to doing that again sometime soon. Big shout out to JD and Brendan from In Session Film. They keep promoting the show, so big thanks. And I'm looking forward to disagreeing with you guys on Alien Covenant, obviously. Of course. A big shout out goes to Vince Leo, Quipster himself. Thanks for putting up with us. Always a pleasure to listen to the short reviews. I love that podcast so much, so check that out. Shout out to Mark of the Covenant, who's always great to interact with. Give him a follow on Twitter at LDiablito underscore 72. Thanks so much for being a cool guy. Chelsea Williford, thank you again for coming on the show. Very lovely, lovely, lovely to have you. Yuche, big kiss to you. <laughs> Obviously, a big shout out to Colin Llewellyn from another film podcast. Sarah Bent, Emerald Williams, mm. Daniel Shubad from Get Real Movies. And last but not least, the always wonderful Sheila. Thank you so much for your support and for quite simply being awesome. We're looking forward to talking to you guys again soon. Thanks again for your support. Let us know what you thought of the Alien Covenant movie and our discussion on the film. Lee and I are both looking forward to getting back to talking film, but for now, I'm going to spend time with my kids, my girlfriend, and I'm going to have coffee with Carrie so we can still debate all this shit. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care. That's it for Atlantic SC Season 2. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.